we've been doing this series called Legends and Misfits, and we've been tracing different characters of the Old Testament. I was thinking as I was getting ready, um, as I've been getting ready, rather, to go to Swaziland, and you saw our team, they're amazing people, but um, as I've been thinking about it over the last couple months, I, I've, confession here, gotten a little bit anxious about it, you know, and just sort of thinking about that long flight and thinking about, you know, Africa and, and non-potable water and all of that stuff, you know, and you're just sort of, I'm the kind of person that kind of, the more I think about something, the more the fears get magnified and anxieties, and maybe a couple of you relate to that. Um, but I realized um, how strange this is, because I used to not think like this. This is my first missions trip um, in maybe 12 or 13 years. Now, I've done trips to Singapore and Malaysia, where I grew up, but one, they were band trips, and we all know band trips overseas are a little more uh, cushy than mission trips, and you may not know that, but now you do, and Eric, my friend Eric knows that, um, and secondly, uh, it's Malaysia, it's where I grew up, it's not a mission trip, it's me going home, you know, um, and so, so it's been 12 or 13 years, I was thinking, since I've done like a proper uh, missions experience, I say proper, uh, a bit tongue-in-cheek, but I realized that in college, you know, I, I, um, I spent a month in Nigeria and we didn't shower for days and it was all awesome and I just thought it was amazing and we took this little plane from one state to another state and it was a local Nigerian airline thing and there might have been someone pedaling to keep the propellers moving. I mean, I just never thought about it. It was just all fun and exciting. And, and then even younger than that, growing up in Malaysia, our youth group would take uh, you know, missions trips from our, we we lived in the peninsula part of Malaysia, which is a bit more, quite a bit more urban. And then you have two states that are on the island of Borneo, which is quite a bit more rural. And we would take mission trips over there, and we'd sleep in those huts that are on stilts, and we'd you know on straw mats and all that stuff. And we just thought this is the greatest thing ever. Why would I wouldn't even think twice about it? And now here I am thinking about how long that flight over there is, and just oh, and 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 all this stuff. And I realize that this happens to us sometimes in life, where when we are uh, younger, maybe, or when we have less, we are more free, and we kind of play loose, and we've just, we're, 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 we live with, with this incredible freedom, and, and, and there's, a, there's almost a carefree generosity, you're just, yeah, sure, man, I mean, you don't have, when you only make, you know, a hundred bucks a week or whatever, you're like, yeah, ten bucks for a pizza, sure, you can have it, you know, and you're just, it's just... But a funny thing happens along the way as you get on in life. The more you have, as my father-in-law is fond of saying, the more stuff you have, the more stuff has you. And there's this thing that happens to us along the way that you get more and you do more and you achieve more and you accomplish more. And then you kind of want to close in a little bit and hang on and, and grip and just you're a little more scared about losing it. And maybe some of it's fine and normal and wisdom and look, you know, Glenn, you're married now, you got kids and all this stuff and you got to think about that. That's all true. But there's a part of it where somewhere inside our own hearts, it be, we begin to kind of get smaller on the inside and our world kind of closes in and we don't, we don't want, we're not thinking about this and that and we're just kind of shrinking in a little bit. All of you that are sports fans know that the worst thing a team could do is play not to lose, play like you're trying not to lose. The best thing for a sports team to do is play like you got nothing to lose, right? Like when we were playing the Steelers in the whatever wild card game, it was like, yeah, we got nothing to lose. Nobody expects us to be here. We could do something crazy like pass the ball on first down, you know? <laughs> just crazy stuff like that. And you, you take risks because you're, you just kind of feel like you can't lose. Well, the truth is probably we all sort of feel like 
I want to live that way. I want to live with this outward expanding heart of love and not this life that kind of closes in and becomes protectionistic or isolationist and smaller and smaller. We don't want to live like that. But what is it about life that makes us get that way? What is it about maybe growing older, maybe not just growing older, maybe just life in general that makes us kind of close in our world instead of expanding out our world? The story that we're going to pick up tonight is actually two different moments in David's life and he goes through something quite like this. We're going to look at a young David in 2 Samuel 6, younger David, David who just become king, whose heart is free and open, generous and lavish. And then we're going to see a David later in life who begins to grasp and take. And the world becomes a bit smaller for him. But turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 6. The backdrop here is... Um, and, you know, David's just become king, and even though there was Saul who was, the, you know, you know, was king before him, David does something to the monarchy in Israel that's more significant. He's uniting the tribes together, and, and, and there's, this, there's a more cohesiveness that's beginning. And moreover, you don't just have a monarchy, you have what David believes or is going to be a dynasty, what God has promised him, a house that will rule forever. For any of you that love history, maybe particularly European history, you'll remember that those, the significant moments are once not only, was when, not only when there's a monarchy, but when the monarchy has a good succession plan. And so you have dynasty that follows. And we can think about all the struggles England went through to make sure that uh, King Henry VIII had his succession plan in place so that he could establish this. Uh, you think about um, before that, Charlemagne. And you, you can name the different situations where when they consolidated rule and then established succession, this was what sort of ushered in a golden age. Well, this is about to be, this is the beginning of Israel's golden age. So when you're reading this story, the, the storyteller is telling us the backdrop of how Israel's golden age begins. And it begins with David trying to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. And the ark of the covenant, not to be confused with Noah's ark, is a, is a chest. It's a wooden chest. And so in fact, the translation that I'm using will say the chest of God, which sounds kind of funny. But it's not this, you know, it's a, like a wooden box sort of chest. And he tries to do it the first time and it doesn't work out so well. That's a whole separate sermon uh, that I've preached before and written about and all of that. But we're going to pick it up in verse 12 when David says, okay, now let's do this the right way. And things kind of work. Verse 12, King David was told, The Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's family and everything he has because of God's chest being there. And so David went and brought God's chest up from Obed-Edom's house to David's city with celebration. And whenever those bearing the chest advanced six steps, David sacrificed an ox and a fatling calf. And David, dressed in a linen priestly vest, danced with all his strength before the Lord. And this is how David and the entire house of Israel brought up the Lord's chest with shouts and trumpet blasts. As the Lord's chest entered David's city, Saul's daughter, Michal, was watching from a window. And she saw King David jumping and dancing before the Lord, and she lost all respect for him. David would not have done well, and so you think you can dance. In the Lord's chest, and the Lord's chest was brought in and put in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And then David offered entirely burned offerings in the Lord's presence, in addition to well-being sacrifices. These are specific offerings and sacrifices. And when David finished offering the entirely burned offerings and the well-being sacrifices, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of heavenly forces. And he distributed... Now, if you are the kind of person that likes to underline in your Bible, and I suggest that's a good thing to do, 
There's a couple of verbs I want you to notice in this chapter. First, at the end of verse 18, where it says, He blessed. He blessed the people in the name of the Lord of heavenly forces. And then in verse 19, He distributed food among all the people of Israel to the whole crowd, male and female, each receiving a loaf of bread, a date cake, and a raisin cake. I mean, this is like that moment on the Oprah Winfrey show, you know, where she says, everyone who came today gets a free car. And they're like, oh my gosh, under our seat is this key, you know. This is David saying, everyone who came today gets a raisin cake. Okay, not quite a car, but a raisin cake. He's, he's giving stuff out. He's happy, generous, full of gratitude. And then all the people went back to their homes, and David went home to bless, you can underline that verb, his household. But Saul's daughter, Michal, came out to meet him. How did Israel's king honor himself today, she said, by exposing himself in plain view of the female servants of his subjects like any indecent person would? And David replied to Michal, I was celebrating before the Lord who chose me over your father and his entire family. Um, this is what in marriage counseling they would say is not fighting fair. Okay? This is David kind of bringing a burn back on a little zinger there. And who appointed me leader over the Lord's people over Israel. And I will celebrate before the Lord again. I may humiliate myself even more. And I may be humbled in my own eyes, but I will be honored by the female servants you are talking about. So there. Michal, Saul's daughter, had no children to the day she died. There's so much that could be said about that text itself. And in fact, lots has been said talking about her barrenness as a sign of her own heart's condition, perhaps. And maybe it's because she's Saul's daughter, she was clinging to an old um, sense of monarchy, or, and this is something new. Maybe the storyteller is trying to make us see something fresh that's happening here. What I want us to kind of focus on tonight, really, is the posture of David's own heart. Here's David, the young king, who recognizes that this day is the fulfillment of loads and loads of promises. This day was that day that he had thought about years and years ago as a young teenage boy when Samuel had anointed him and had chosen him instead of all of his other brothers. This was the day that he only dreamed about when he was a fugitive running from Saul. This was the day that he only dreamed would happen when his men at Ziglag threatened to stone him. I mean, this was the day that David thought would never come. And lo and behold, God had been faithful. And here he was, no longer a fugitive, no longer on the run, no longer with a band of, of, of soldiers who were the down and outers who wanted to kill him. Now he's celebrating. This is the beginning. This is it. And David knows that all of this has happened because of God, because of Yahweh's faithfulness. And so he's dancing. He's giving out raisin cakes. I mean, this is a David who's generous and gracious and lavish and open. A David who understands the lavishness of God and responds in a similar way. But a funny thing happens to David along the way. He begins to lose that. He begins to become this guy who, who closes in upon himself. And a few chapters later in chapter 11, verse 1. Now in the spring when kings go off to war, I love that. So this is good storytelling. This is the narrator saying, I just want you to pay attention. In the time of year when kings go off to war, the great King David did not. When you think about David's story, 
there are two names that you think of. One is Goliath and the other is Bathsheba. Both people represent incredible times of testing for David. Young David, when he's facing Goliath, runs to the battle. Older David has retreated from the battle for whatever reason. Decided he didn't need to go. Kings were supposed to, according to Israel's way, were supposed to lead the way in battle. No, stay back. Whatever the case, this is a David who's taking it easy. And David sent Joab along with his servants and all the Israelites, and they destroyed the Ammonites, attacking the city of Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his couch and was pacing back and forth on the roof of the palace. From the roof, and here again, if you're an underliner, underline these verbs. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone and inquired about the woman, and the report came back, isn't this Eliam's daughter, Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Another thing about how the storyteller tells his stories, when he names, how the storyteller names the characters is significant. Later, when Bathsheba shows up in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew 1, guess what she's called? She's not called Bathsheba, what she named as the wife of Uriah. As if God never forgot. Well, I don't know. As if God wanted to remind us she was someone else's. The way the storyteller lays it out is to say to us, whoop, whoop, red alert, red alert. This is someone else's daughter. This is someone else's wife. But also to show us that a woman in this culture, in this age, in this sort of setting, context here is without much power. The woman here doesn't stand on her own. The woman here is voiceless. She doesn't speak in the story until later. She's just so-and-so's daughter and so-and-so's wife. And David, rather than adding dignity to her and addressing her, David only adds to the objectifying of her. And he says, well, get her. And so David sent messengers to get her. There's the other verb, get. And when she had come to him, he slept with her. And then she returned home. And the woman conceived and sent word to David and said, she said, I'm pregnant. Finally, the woman speaks. And she speaks words that make this powerful man's world begin to unravel. And all of a sudden, David is now back on his heels trying to think about, okay, what do I need to do? How do I deal with this? And so he brings, he says, well, let's call Uriah back from the battle and let's see if maybe he'll be with her and then he'll think it's his child. And that doesn't work out because Uriah is this honorable dude who won't do that while battle's going on. And so then David says, well, let's get him to go in the front lines of the battle in this really risky attack. Maybe he'll be killed and he is. All of a sudden, David's in this, in the thick of it now. He's tried to control and manipulate and scheme, and it's all coming apart. The reason I'm having you look at the two sets of verbs in 2 Samuel 6 and 2 Samuel 11 is that in chapter 6, the young King David is blessing and distributing and giving. And now older King David is seeing and getting, and taking, and having. This is a David who's begun to turn the world in on himself. To grasp, to grab, to cling, to hold in. 
You might say that young David was all about surrender. And older King David is all about control. And you might say that young King David was a giver. And older King David had become a taker. Take, take, grab, take. In fact, this is what Samuel had warned Israel about. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, the previous book that Samuel had written, there was this moment, see, when Israel said, hey, we want a king, we want to be like everyone else, we want a king. And Samuel goes to God and he says, God, what do I do with this? And God says, Samuel, don't be so upset, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. And he says, go, go and tell them this, and this is what Samuel tells them in 1 Samuel 8, a few decades before this. This is how your king will rule over you and operate, Samuel said. He will take your sons and he will use them for his chariots and his cavalry and as runners for his chariot. He will use them as his commanders of troops of 1,000 and troops of 50 or to do his plowing and his harvesting and landscaping. No, And to make his weapons or parts for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, or bakers. He will take your best fields, vineyards, and olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take your male and female servants along with the best of your cattle and donkeys. He will make them do his work. He will take, are you getting the point? One-tenth of your flocks and then you yourselves will become his slaves. And when that day comes, you will cry out because of the king you chose for yourselves. But on that day, the Lord won't answer you. Samuel is seeing this and he says, look, this is what happens that the tendency, the trajectory for humans is the more power we get, the more power-hungry we become. And maybe it's easy for us to say, oh, that's, that's true about kings. I think maybe that's true of all of our hearts. Sometimes the more we have, the more we want. And the more control we get, the more control we want. And all of a sudden, as life goes on, we should be becoming more and more free and more and more outward. And instead, we've become more and more closed in. Taking, grasping, holding, clinging, grabbing. Kind of reminds me a little bit of Lord of the Rings, you know. Uh, The backstory of how Gollum becomes Gollum. You know, he's got this ring of power. One ring to rule them all. He's taking care of it, and all of a sudden, he becomes Gollum. And he's going, my precious. (laughs) It's easy for us to look at David and say, oh, David, what a rascal. Men are pigs. Maybe. The truth is, how easy is it for us to all become takers? To live our lives closed in on ourselves beginning to grab and grasp and hold and protect. And before long, we have golemnized our soul by pressure, clinging, grabbing, holding. When we are takers, our world gets smaller. When we are takers, our world gets smaller. The kind of person that grasps and grabs and takes and holds and protects. And all along the way, the the walls are getting further in, closing further in, getting narrower, smaller. Oxygen is draining from the room, and we think we're protecting it. We've got it.
I don't know why this happened for David, but I know why it happens for us. Many times it's because the longer you go on in life, the more you get hurt, the more you get disappointed, the more you are violated, the more you're wounded. And so it's easy to kind of start to think, hey, listen, man, if I don't take care of myself, who will? And so people say it to us. Look, man, you got to look out for yourself because if you don't do it, nobody's going to look out for you. Oh, all right, yeah, okay, i got to get what I need. And something happens along the way where we start to believe this voice or this line that's really a lie in our head that says, look, hey, hey, if you don't do this, then it won't happen. Or whatever else you could fill in that blank. If I don't, dot, 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 then it won't, dot, dot, dot. And so if I don't make sure this, 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 then it won't, da, 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 da. And if I don't, and all along the way, it's control, control, grasp, control, control. You ever notice that the fruit of the Spirit is self-control? There's nothing connected to the Spirit that's about others' control. <laughs> what a bummer, huh? That's not one of the spiritual gifts, the power to control others. Oh, I, thought, I just thought it's like the Holy Spirit was like magic. No, I can't do that? Oh, Actually, the work of the flesh is when we try to control others. But the fruit of the Spirit is when we begin to control ourselves. But see what happens when we believe this lie that I've got to take care of me and I've got to this and if I don't, then this is going to happen again and I've got to cling. And Maybe you're a person that, you know, a parent that you feel like, look, I'm just, all my time is spent for the kids and it's for someone else and I'm laying down my life and I'm doing this and I'm doing this and I'm doing this and it's just, I just need this for myself. And certainly there are moments where we've got to replenish ourselves and take Sabbaths and all that stuff is beautiful and, and right and good. But there's this line that we cross where all of a sudden we react almost maybe passive aggressively and say, okay, fine, I'm done serving people. I'm done. I've got to take care of me and I'm me. But the lie about that is when you live that way, the world gets smaller, not bigger. The more you cling, the less you have. The more you grasp, the less you get. It just sort of works that way. Well, if we're honest, none of us say, would say we want to live that way. Say, well, I don't want to live that way. I don't, I don't want to do that. I want to live like a taker so what do we do oh well it's simple right it's just you got to be a giver then right isn't that the answer isn't that the flip side here give us the answer is that it if only it were that easy hey if only it was so simple as to say well just yeah hey but selfishness is like a virus in our veins it's this infection in our system that makes us shrivel up and so it doesn't do any good to say well just be better i don't know how I think that the cure, the antidote for this is a heart that begins to worship. Because worship makes you see Christ. It makes you see a Father in heaven who's gracious and generous and lavish, who cares. When we are worshipers, the world gets wider or bigger. It begins to expand. 
And when I say this phrase, worshiper, I don't mean like, okay, well, so next Sunday you need to come and you need a pogo stick jump. Maybe. That might be good for some of you. Take a step out. Maybe. But what I'm really talking about is a posture of your heart that begins to become aware of all the goodness that God has poured out for us. Yesterday, um, our kids were kind of playing, and you know, we, we have three kids, we have a fourth on the way, and we, our, our girls are seven, five, and then our son is two, and um, all our kids are, are wonderful and present unique challenges, it's just the way kids are, right? And um, our, Nora, our, our five-year-old, she, um, she is creative and sweet and all of this stuff. But we're, Holly and I are aware that as the middle child, there's sometimes that she feels the need to work a little harder to get us to pay attention. And Jonas is just at the age now where he just wants to get in the mix and play with them. And when I say get in the mix, I mean like hitting them. And um, he, this is just what he does is he's a guy, he's a boy, you know, he wants, you know so, so he'll bring his little Tonka trucks and like roll it over their stuff. And they're trying to play or do dolls or something, you know. And so yesterday I'm sitting in the living room and I know Jonas and, and Nora are playing in the other room and, and I hear Jonas start to scream. And I know what's happening. Something's happening. Nora's doing something to him, but I know it's only because he's done something to her. And so I'm trying to figure out how, how we can help. And so I, I call her, hey, Nora, come in here. Come, let's talk. What's going on here? Come in here. Come in here. And after a while she comes in. So, hey, what's going on? Well, Jonas is driving his truck all over my paper and I'm trying to color Okay, uh, uh, yeah. So what'd you do? Well, I pushed his truck off. Okay, and is that why he was screaming? Well, no, I was trying to rip it out of his hands and move it away. Like, uh-huh, well, okay. Honey, do you, do you, um, you think that's what, you know, we, sh- we should do? She's like, no, but he doesn't understand, please. <laughs> well, that's, that's a good point, you know, an astute <laughs> point. Okay, carry on. No, just kidding. <laughs> And um, I said, honey, what should you do when, uh, when he's bothering you? So I should go get you a mom. And I asked her, I said, honey, do you, do you know that if you call for mom or I, that we'll come and help you? She says, yeah, dad, I know. So do you know that if you ask for help, we'll help you? And I, in that moment, realized... This is what God says to us. Do you believe that when you call that I hear you? Do you believe that when you cry out that I'm here? Or do you believe that you're on your own, that you've got to grasp and take and hold and fight and claw and grab because if I don't, it won't? Or do you believe there's a God who cares? Is it possible that there's a Father who's gracious and generous? Is it possible that He is the Lord, the Lord, abounding in compassion, full of mercy, slow to anger? Is it possible that our God is this good and gracious Father? I think worship makes our world bigger, not just because, ooh, worship is great, but because it makes us aware of God and His graciousness and His lavishness and His love that never ends and never fails. And so as we begin to turn our hearts toward him, he says, okay, God, yes, you are. Yes, God, you are. God, I, I don't feel it. I don't sab it. I, I just, ah. 
the heart slowly begins to oxygen fills it all of a sudden and it gets a little bigger and the coma that we've been living under the coma of selfishness all of a sudden we begin to wake up from because worship wakes us up from the coma and sickness of selfishness and makes us see there is a God the Father Almighty the maker of heaven and earth Jesus the Son who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven, the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. And we begin to say, all right, God, I worship. Here you are. Here you are. Here you are. Jesus is called the Son of David because in an ultimate sense, He is the way that David's house becomes the reign that goes on forever and ever and has no end. It's His kingdom that reigns. But Jesus, of course, the Son of David, is much greater than David in every way. See, Jesus is a king who always gave his, of Himself. Jesus is the king who lived His whole life giving and pouring and serving and blessing and calling the woman and touching the Samaritan and lifting up the child and holding the baby and calling to the widow and saying to them, yes, 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 Jesus is the king that unlike 1 Samuel 8 and the kings that Samuel warned about who take and take and take, Jesus is the king who gives and gives and gives and gives and gives until the moment that he's on the cross. And he said of this moment, he said, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down. This is the Jesus who in his final words, which we'll relive on Good Friday together, says, into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit, give and give until his life is poured out. This is a king who doesn't take, but a king who gives. And I suspect that if we fix our eyes on that king and recognize the kind of love that's poured out, been poured out in Christ, that our hearts begin to become grateful. Our hearts begin to become soft. And the more grateful they become, the wider it becomes. The bigger the world becomes. The less our lives begin to close in, the more they begin to open up. Tonight we're getting ready to come to the table of the Lord. And I thought tonight that it might be really appropriate to pray David's prayer of confession after Bathsheba, which the Psalms tell us is Psalm 51. And so we're going to pray this prayer of confession from Psalm 51, and then we're going to come to the table of the Lord. Communion is called the Eucharist, which is a nice word for thanksgiving. It's the great thanksgiving in, in some church traditions. Because we don't come to this table like it's a potluck, bringing our own bread and our own stuff. We come with empty hands to say, Jesus, thank you that you are the gracious God. Thank you that you gave your life. And so we come with gratitude. So would you take a moment tonight and, and uh, just be still and maybe let the Spirit bring about things and, and you guys can play quietly under this, but just let the Spirit kind of make us mindful of places that we've begun to let our heart shrink and let the world kind of close in because we've been protectionistic or isolationist or whatever the word is and we just sort of 
Maybe we need to say, God, forgive me for grabbing and clinging and holding. Take a moment, and then we'll pray Psalm 51 together.